Welcome to The Space Show, presented by members of the Space Association of Australia. Hello, I'm Andrew Rennie. First up, let's go to Space Show News. The new Federal Government Minister for Space is Ed Husick, H-U-S-I-C, and he's the member for Chifley, which is in Sydney. He was first elected to the House of Representatives in 2010. Before being sworn in today as Minister for Industry and Science, he was Parliamentary Secretary to the Prime Minister and Parliamentary Secretary for Broadband for two months in 2013. He has also served on committees for National Broadband Network, Cyber Safety, Clean Energy Future, Australia Fund, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Affairs, Infrastructure and Communications, and Communications and the Arts. From 2016 to 2019, he was Shadow Minister for Digital Economy, and since January last year, was Shadow Minister for Industry and Innovation. So there's our new Minister for Space, Ed Husick. Well, now we're going to go off to look at planet Earth. Earth below us, drifting, falling, floating, weightless, calling, calling home. Welcome to episode 39 of our Planet Earth series, in which we look at our home planet. Our first item is how the Hubble Space Telescope was able to detect signs of life on Earth by looking at the Moon during a lunar eclipse. Taking advantage of the total lunar eclipse of January 2019, astronomers, using NASA's Hubble Space Telescope, have detected ozone in Earth's atmosphere. In this observation, Hubble did not look at Earth directly. Instead, astronomers used the Moon as a mirror to reflect sunlight that passed through Earth's atmosphere. This method serves as a proxy for how they will observe planets around other stars in search for worlds similar to our own. Though numerous ground-based observations of this kind have been done previously, this is the first time ultraviolet light passing through Earth's atmosphere was observed from space. The measurements from this experiment detected the strong spectral fingerprint of ozone. On Earth, photosynthesis over billions of years is responsible for our planet's high oxygen levels and thick ozone layer. That's one reason why scientists think ozone or oxygen could be a sign of life on another planet. But finding ozone on distant worlds isn't an easy task. Ultraviolet observations like this can best be conducted from space telescopes above the limiting effects of looking through Earth's skies because ozone blocks most ultraviolet light from beyond the atmosphere. One of NASA's major goals is to identify habitable and inhabited planets. But how would we know whether a distant planet has ozone or not? The atmospheres of some extrasolar planets can be probed if that distant world passes across the face of its parent star, called a transit. During a transit, starlight filters through the backlit exoplanet's atmosphere. Chemicals in the atmosphere leave their telltale signature by filtering out certain colors of starlight. Astronomers have used Hubble to observe the atmospheres of several gas giant planets that transit their stars, 
but terrestrial planets are much smaller objects and their atmosphere thinner, like the skin on an apple. Therefore, teasing out these signatures is much more difficult. To prepare for future studies with larger telescopes, astronomers used Hubble to conduct experiments on a much closer and only known inhabited terrestrial planet, Earth. Our planet's perfect alignment with the sun and moon during a total lunar eclipse mimics the geometry of a transiting terrestrial planet with its star. But the observations were also challenging because the moon is very bright and its surface is not a perfect reflector because it is modeled with bright and dark areas. The moon is also so close to Earth that it appears to move very quickly in the sky, making it harder for Hubble to stay pointed at the same location. However, in spite of the challenges, the experiment was an incredible success, and Hubble is supporting the ongoing quest to find planets that are similar to our own, and perhaps, one day, find signs of life on other worlds. Who would have thought the Hubble Space Telescope showing us signs of life on Earth? Planet Earth is blue. It is now two and a half years since the devastating Australian bushfires of 2019 and 2020 summer. They sent far-reaching plumes of smoke into the atmosphere that worsened air quality over the eastern states and as far afield as New Zealand and even South America. Predicting where bushfire smoke will travel and how bad the air will be downwind is a challenge, but Earth-observing satellites can help. Among them are NASA's Terra and CloudSat. Another is Calypso, the Cloud Aerosol and Infrared Pathfinder Satellite Observation. The United States' National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration operates the Suomi Satellite. Together, the instruments on these satellites provide glimpses at the smoke over time, which can help improve air quality predictions. The satellite instruments have the advantage of providing broad coverage and consistent measurement accuracy. An additional advantage is that they make their observations without any risk to the people taking the data. One of the instruments on the Terra satellite is the Multi-Angle Imaging Spectroradiometer. This has nine different cameras pointing toward Earth at different angles. This allowed Terra to collect snapshots of the smoke plumes from different angles. Scientists were able to look at those different perspectives to calculate the extent and height of the smoke plumes both downwind and nearest the source of the fire. Many of the plumes went more than four kilometres into the air. This put them above the boundary layer of the atmosphere. And this is the layer of atmosphere nearest the Earth's surface. Now, smoke tends to stay aloft longer, travel further, and have a larger environmental impact if it is injected higher in the atmosphere. Terra's spectroradiometer also collected information about the amount, size, and brightness of the particles within the smoke plume. They did this based on how particles scatter light at different angles and wavelengths. This data gave researchers information about the characteristics of the bushfire smoke in order to predict how it would move and affect air quality. The intensely burning parts of the fires released mostly small, dark particles. As the plumes moved downwind, the particles became larger and brighter. This is possibly because water and other gases emitted by the fires condensed on the smoke particles. Well, expectations are high for the GOES-18 satellite, G-O-E-S, which is Geostationary Operational Environmental Satellite. And uh, that's because of its ability uh, of, the, of its predecessors to detect bushfires. This feature from the Goddard Space Flight Center. The 2020 Western U.S. wildfire season was historic. 
both for the record 59,000 wildfires that formed and the 10.1 million acres they scorched. But right on its heels was 2021, in which nearly 52,300 fires were recorded, with more than 7.8 million acres burned through December 24th of that year. Since launching in 2016, NOAA's most advanced geostationary satellites are improving fire weather forecasts, wildfire detection, and fire hazard tracking in near real time. With lives and property at stake, timely, high-quality data is critical for firefighting efforts on the ground. NOAA's GOES-17, operating in the GOES-West orbit, has shown its mettle, detecting and monitoring wildfires and the hazardous smoke they emit. There's two instruments on the GOES series of satellites which are helpful for wildfire detection and monitoring. The first is the Advanced Baseline Imager, or the ABI. We're able to detect hot spots from the thermal signatures from the fires, and we're also able to detect the smoke and track the smoke with time in order to issue notifications and warnings to the public. The second instrument is called the Geostationary Lightning Mapper, or the GLM. GLM is important because oftentimes lightning is the cause of the start of wildfires, and so forecasters can monitor the GLM to see where lightning has occurred to decide whether or not they think some lightning may have started a fire. But a new satellite called GOES-T is poised to replace GOES-17 in the GOES-West position once it reaches orbit GOES-T will be renamed GOES-18, and it will provide the same sophisticated technology to track wildfires in the western U.S., as well as detect lightning that can ignite a wildfire in parched vegetation. This current capability of GOES is the fact that we can do rapid scans, higher resolution with higher sensitivity, and include things for the first time like Lightning Mapper and the ABI instruments. I don't think we could imagine not having GOES capability, we absolutely need it. The National Interagency Fire Center is the nation's support center for wildland firefighting. GOES is an eye in the sky. It's giving us a hemispheric perspective with those 16 and 17. Without having those two satellites up there constantly staring, constantly monitoring, constantly providing us with information, we really have a, just a big gap. We would lose a lot of our capability to understand the environment, to see the interaction of the fires with the atmosphere and see how the atmosphere is impacting the behavior of the fires. With those being able to look at the United States every five to 10 minutes, we're getting a much more real-time appreciation for how fires are behaving because of the ability of the GOES satellites to detect the heat from the fires. When the bushfires engulf our countryside, the sky can turn an apocalyptic shade of burnt orange. In other areas, the sky is a hazy grey, and flecks of ash float through the air. Further away, the sky looks relatively normal. And that does not mean that there are no smoke particles in the air. There may be too few smoke particles for our eyes to detect. One satellite has been able to measure smoke in apparently clear skies. This satellite is Calypso, the Cloud Aerosol LiDAR and Infrared Pathfinder Satellite Observation. It has a laser aboard that shoots bursts of light towards the Earth. When that light hits something, such as smoke particles, it is reflected back to sensors on Calypso. Even smoke that is too thin for human eyes to see can be detected by the LIDAR. Calypso is not only able to measure how much smoke is present, it can also reveal how high it is. Calypso can tell the difference between clouds and smoke. This can sometimes be hard to do by looking at a satellite image. Knowing where the smoke is in relation to clouds allows researchers to see the interaction between clouds and smoke. This can affect the characteristics and spread of the smoke. For example, sometimes clouds ingest and modify smoke particles. They can remove smoke from the air when it rains. Other times, dark bushfire smoke particles can absorb sunlight, becoming warm and heating the atmosphere, which can cause clouds to evaporate. 
One disadvantage of Calypso is that it sees only a narrow swath below it and generally passes over any given place no more than once a day. Earth below us, drifting, falling, floating, weightless. Now, have you ever wondered how uh, we detect life underground? Well, Stephen Giovannini has detected the deepest underground life that has ever been discovered. Earth, sky. There are still frontiers out there being explored, and it's very exciting to be working at one of these frontiers uh, because you never know what you're going to find, and we certainly were surprised by what we encountered. You are listening to microbiologist Stephen Giovannani of Oregon State University, and this is Earth Sky's Clear Voices for Science. Dr. Giovannani led a team that in late 2010 discovered living creatures, bacteria, over a kilometer below the ocean floor in the North Atlantic. He spoke about the findings with Earth Sky's Jorge Salazar. So tell us, um, what are the main findings of your investigation of life at the deepest layers of Earth's crust? Well, this expedition investigated microbial life in gabbros, which are rocks uh, in the deep part of the ocean crust, and discovered bacteria there. And it was known that there are bacteria in these rocks. Uh, The rocks are cracked, and the ocean circulates through this, uh, this rock crust. But no one had ever gotten into this deep layer of the Earth's crust before and looked at what was there. We weren't that surprised to find organisms there because... The temperatures were about right, and we knew there was water there. The big surprise was the type of bacteria we found. They weren't the same ones that are found in the basalts above. They were uh, an entirely different group of microorganisms. The interesting thing about uh, this discovery was that the organisms we found down there were normally associated with degrading hydrocarbons, and the bacteria in the rocks above are Uh, quite different, not associated with that kind of activity. Um, So the bacteria that we found down there were uh, closely related to organisms that are normally found in uh, oil reservoirs or methane deposits. That was a surprise, but it turns out that uh, there's an explanation for this, that other scientists associated with this expedition and also working at a, a nearby and very exciting uh, area called the Lost City Hydrothermal Vent, have uh, reported that hydrocarbons are in this area, uh, in this region, are being formed abiotically. And that, that means that, um, you know, essentially carbon and hydrogen molecules are, are being made from carbon dioxide and hydrogen um, Uh, in interactions between water and rock and producing organic matter. Now, most of your listeners will know that the organic matter in the part of the biosphere that we're used to all comes from photosynthesis. So it strongly appears that uh, in this region of the Earth's crust, at least, you've got abiotic synthesis of organic matter occurring and that the microbial community we encountered is using that material uh, as a source of nutrients for growth. Um, so um, oil, I guess oil, methane, is being created deep in the ocean, um, not uh, through the decomposition of um, plant life. It's actually being created from um, from kind of like the raw ingredients, uh, carbon dioxide, uh, hydrogen, um, water. Uh, so um, do I have this right? Yeah, well, you have it right that... Uh, uh, that's the best hypothesis at the moment that we have. So that that has a lot of implications. Uh, first of all, it says that this community of microorganisms far below the seafloor may be subsisting on materials that are not derived from photosynthesis at the surface. So they may be truly independent of the surface biosphere. Secondly, it has implications for understanding what life might be like on other uh, other planets, and the one that the planet that everybody is most interested in, of course, is Mars, because it's known that there's water on Mars, and it's known that Mars is producing methane, and 
it's a bit of a mystery where that methane comes from. Uh, so one possibility is that it's being produced by abiotic processes like this. Enough is known about Mars to postulate that if there is life there, it's probably some sort of subterranean life uh, occurring in rocks very much like the rocks that were investigating that we were investigating uh, at the Atlantic Massif. And um, uh, how uh, you mentioned that the, that the conditions there were just right um, for I mean there was really no surprise as you said um, to find life down there because of the conditions. What are those conditions like? Well, there's a lot of rock and uh, a little bit of water circulating through cracks. It's uh, it's not that hot. It's it's a balmy temperature. I think you and I'd be happy uh, at the temperature that most of these rocks were collected at. Um, there's the concentrations of nutrients for growth are very low, and the concentrations of cells are are quite low too. Uh, but there are traces. I don't know what it would smell like if you could sniff it, but there are certainly traces of hydrocarbons in the water, and uh, and though as I say, those appear to be uh, derived from interactions between carbon dioxide, water, and rock. Tell us more. Why are scientists looking for life in some of the deepest places that have ever been drilled into the Earth? The the desire to understand the microbiology of this these igneous subsurface crustal rocks is motivated by a number of different uh, a number of different curiosities that humans have. One is uh, these rocks certainly are uh, s similar to the kinds of rocks found on planets like Mars. And so one wonders whether similar processes could be, whether you could find out about uh, what's happening in the, in the deep Earth subsurface and whether similar processes might be happening elsewhere in the solar system. I think that's a very legitimate uh, uh, curiosity that dri motivates this sort of research. Secondly, today, we're very concerned and interested in how the climate and um, chemistry of our planet was formed. And this interaction of seawater with crustal rocks is a very important long-term process that has transformed the chemistry of seawater and continues to uh, continues to alter seawater chemistry. So, and it's massive in scale. I mean, the size of the Earth's crust is enormous, and the water, the oceans are constantly circulating through that crust. So, uh, even if it's a very dilute process, releasing energy and slightly altering the chemistry of the seawater, it's happening on such an immense scale that it uh, it's something that humans ought to know more about, I think. And um, so what's next? Um, where will this le research lead to? Um, uh, you said that, that it's not easy to do this, and it may not happen maybe for another expedition like what the IODP did may, may not happen for a while. Um, are there plans to, to, to seek life further down? Well, there's certainly a lot of planning going on, and uh, there are no plans on the table at the moment to resample this environment. It's going to take a few years to mount another expedition of this scale to go back. Uh, and I'm not sure that this, that they would go back to this, uh, this part of the crust. They might choose to sample another region. You've been listening to Stephen Giovanani, a professor of microbiology at Oregon State University in Corvallis. To subscribe to this and other free science interview podcasts, visit the subscribe page at earthsky.org. I'm Deborah Bird. EarthSky is a clear voice for science. We're at earthsky.org. Planet Earth is blue. On FM, online, and on TuneIn, 24-7. This is 88.3 Southern FM. Over in Aotearoa, New Zealand, a bunch of smart Kiwis are preparing to launch a satellite to the moon. Yes, to the moon. The launch vehicle is Rocket Lab's Electron, and the satellite is NASA's Capstone. We join a press briefing to discuss this thrilling 
development. And uh, an update on what you'll hear in this. Early today, Rocket Lab set June 13 as the targeted launch date for Capstone. Hi, everyone. Welcome, and thanks for joining today's media teleconference. I'm Sarah Frazier with NASA's Office of Communications. In the next couple weeks, a new CubeSat mission is going to launch to the moon. Capstone will be the first spacecraft to fly in a near-rectilinear halo orbit, the orbit intended for NASA's gateway. Capstone is short for Cislunar Autonomous Position System Technology Operations and Navigation Experiment. In addition to flying the near-rectilinear halo orbit, Capstone carries two technology demonstrations. So here today to talk more about the mission objectives, the spacecraft at launch, and the mission's connection to Gateway are Chris Baker, Small Spacecraft Technology Program Executive in NASA's Space Technology Mission Directorate, Brad Cheatham, Advanced Space CEO and Principal Investigator for Capstone, Peter Beck, Rocket Lab Founder and CEO, Mark Bell, Terran Orbital Co-Founder, Chairman and CEO, Nujun Baranci, Chief of the Exploration Mission Planning Office at NASA's Johnson Space Center in Houston. All right, thank you. Uh, afternoon, everyone. We're looking forward to Capstone's upcoming launch um, as early as June 6th from New Zealand. Uh, as you heard, Capstone is the Cislunar Autonomous Positioning System Technology Operations and Navigation Experiment, and it will be launching to uh, deliver the first spacecraft to demonstrate the unique uh, lunar orbit intended for NASA's gateway. 12U CubeSat will enter into the near-rectilinear halo orbit to uh, verify the dynamics and gain operational knowledge of this beneficial but challenging orbit. Uh, Capstone is a rapid, low-cost, risk-tolerant demonstration that will also test multiple new capabilities with the intent to help lay a foundation for future small spacecraft missions and uh, commercial support of missions beyond Earth. Capstone is built around a uh, firm fixed-price, small-business, innovative research contract the spacecraft is owned and operated by our commercial partners. The mission has its roots in small businesses and in the U.S. government's uh, small business programs uh, with multiple partners, including Advanced Space, Tyvek Nanosatellite Systems, part of Terran Orbital, Stellar Exploration, uh, Tethers Unlimited, uh, and Rocket Lab, uh, all having been the recipients of current or prior small business innovation research awards. Beyond our support uh, of the Artemis program, uh, part of what makes this mission uh, compelling from, from my perspective is, is how it is pushing forward our desire to increase the pace of space exploration, the expansion of commercial space capabilities, helping support not just our uh, major human exploration program, but also helping expand uh, the capability of small missions to reach new destinations and operate in challenging new environments. Great. Thank you, Chris. So next we'll go to Brad from Advanced Space. Great, thank you, and very excited as we are, are getting uh, approaching launch here for the Capstone mission. Just to talk a little bit more about the mission, I'm, I'm grateful that, that the prior two speakers have spelled out the acronym because I, I have to do that all the time. Uh, but with the Cislunar Autonomous Positioning System Technology Operations and Navigation Experiment, that's the capstone mission. Uh, the way I like to, to dive into those details a little more as we sort of think about it is two, two key activities. The first is the, the first four letters of the acronym, the Cislunar Autonomous Positioning System. And this is an advanced lunar navigation capability uh, that here at Advanced Space has been in development for several years. We really see this as a foundation for future growth of operations at the moon. And, and supporting capstone has really gotten this system ready for flight. Uh, we'll be demonstrating it on the upcoming flight and also has matured several different capabilities through that process. Process. We've learned a lot uh, that we think will improve this system going into the future to enable future missions of all types and kinds uh, at the moon. The second four letters of the acronym, the Technology Operations and Navigation Experiment, um, this is sort of the second key for us, which is really we are focused here on demonstrating the ability to operate in these highly beneficial but also very unique orbits at the moon. Uh, as was mentioned, our target orbit is a near-rectilinear halo orbit, uh, which is part of a, a three-body Earth-Moon orbit family. Thanks, Brad. I'm now going to pass it to Mark from Terran Orbital. Great. Uh, thank you, Sarah. Uh, we're proud of our 12U spacecraft we designed, uh, offering fully redundant dual-string bus, which is a new level of mission assurance in a small set. We will be operating the satellites out of our mock in Irvine, California, utilizing NASA's deep space, tech, deep space network. And uh, I just wanted to say, you know, it was a great team to work with, and we thank everybody for all the support and all the confidence they had in us and uh, delivering, uh, delivering the satellite. And I'm going to turn it back to you, Sarah. All right. Thanks, Mark. Uh, now we'll hear from Peter from Rocket Lab. 
Yeah, thanks very much, Sarah. And, and, and you know, echo all my colleagues here, a huge thanks to NASA and, and, and the whole team. I mean, it, it really was a whole team effort. And, and doing a mission like this is, is, is no easy task. But I guess what, what I'm most excited about is, is we're, we're really, you know, from, from Rocket Lab's perspective at least, bringing a new capability to go very far and do exciting things in deep space you know, in, in a, at a budget and in a timeline that, that we've never really seen before. I mean, uh, a small dedicated launch to the moon uh, is, is, is pretty phenomenal. And, you know, there's been a lot of new capabilities that have been created uh, to enable this mission. And, um, you know, the, the lunar photon is, is an incredibly high energy upper stage that, um, that, that, uh, that we've spent a long time uh, developing so we're, we're, we're super excited to see it on the pad and uh, and, and can't can't wait to uh, to get a safe launch and uh, and off to the moon thanks Peter all right I'll bring it back to NASA and pass it to Nuju to talk about capstone's connection to gateway thank you and good afternoon yeah this mission is exciting milestone for so many aspects of NASA's Artemis mission it goes without saying that we view the capstone mission as a whole as a valuable precursor not just for gateway um, which we talk a lot about for Capstone, but also for Orion and the human landing system in the larger architecture. Capstone will gather important data on the near rectilinear halo orbit, or NRHO, and this is viewed as the orbit for Gateway and the vehicles in our, it will interact with. So NRHO will undergird the success of, of not just Gateway, but many aspects of the Artemis mission, and that's for many reasons. NRHO enables global lunar access, um, in particular, the South Pole, which is what we're interested in for the Artemis uh, campaign. It's highly fuel efficient, especially when compared to other types of orbits around the moon. NRHO will give a gateway a continuous line of sight or view of Earth, so we get uninterrupted communication between the Earth and the moon. And as the gateway vehicle travels in deep space, its presence opens up uh, a lot of opportunities for radiation experience and the greater um, analysis of space weather on people and instruments for future exploration. So the benefits of NRHO are clear, and we're excited to see Capstone test and validate this orbit for the first time. Artemis teams like Gateway and Orion will use the data from Capstone to validate our models, which will be important for operations and planning for the future missions. The NASA and Advanced Space teams have been collaborating very closely, for instance, working as one team on Gateway's mission design and trajectory, and there's been a lot of sharing back and forth of data and other activities. So it's been a very fruitful collaboration and echoing the sentiments of everyone else on the call. Um, we're excited to see Capstone ready to fly and that all of the Artemis teams are excited to watch it happen. Thank you. On FM, online, and on TuneIn 24-7, this is 88.3 Southern FM. Back to the press conference now. Our first question today comes from Elizabeth Howell. Your line is now open. Can you give me a sense about how you're going to be assessing success for this particular orbit? Uh, in, in, in terms of quantifying success, we have uh, several measurable objectives um, that we've identified from, from day one working with, with the NASA team. Um, a lot of those get to uh, val validating uh, the predicted fuel usage, uh, validating the performance on uh, both ground navigation, uh, so predicted versus reality, uh, as well as uh, the operation or the demonstration of our system or autonomous positioning system, a key part of that is uh, we have great idea how that works in a lab here in Denver. We, we need to figure out how it works at, uh, you know, on a spacecraft at the moon, and there's a lot of nuance of, of those signals. C closing a cross-link between the Capstone spacecraft and the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, orbiter uh, a system that certainly was not designed to do this experiment, but we've been working with the NASA Goddard team to be able to do this experiment. That activity already has yielded tremendous learning uh, on what those future systems will need to be like so that we can have spacecraft at the moon talking to each other. And ultimately, during Capstone, we'll learn a lot about that signal performance and the, the, the performance of the CAP system at the moon. Uh, hello, everyone. This is Tim Fernholtz from Quartz. Uh, I think I understand the benefits of this new orbit to NASA's plans, but I'm not sure I understand the challenges. Could you talk a little bit about what makes an orbit like this challenging for a spacecraft to get to and maybe compare it to either the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter's uh, positioning or another spacecraft in orbit so we can sort of understand uh, both the costs and the benefits. And I think maybe I'll start, you mentioned at one point, you know, getting to the orbit. And I think that's a key benefit of the near rectilinear halo orbit is that it is accessible. And so I want to pull on that thread first because the whole mission, Capstone, from day one when it was first envisioned, is entirely enabled by this benefit of 
the NRHO, which is that we can use something called a ballistic lunar transfer um, to very efficiently get into this orbit, this NRHO. Um, and, and to compare that, uh, our uh, approach to get there is on the order of, you know, tens of meters per second of fuel required. And, and if we were to do a direct transfer uh, to a low lunar orbit or to even a direct transfer to, to these type of three-body orbits, we'd be talking about hundreds of meters per second of fuel. So it's basically an order of magnitude more efficient. Um, and that is a, a key enabler for uh, for Capstone um, because from the beginning we were looking at a, a small spacecraft. Um, and so in order to be able to do this mission, we had to know how to get there efficiently. And that's something that we've, we've spent uh, a lot of time developing those capabilities. And what those capabilities look like, to get to the root of your question, is really having the ability to design these transfers which change uh, day to day and, and month to month and there, there's a lot of availability but they're not always the same and so we had to develop the tools to be able to uh, provide to rocket lab a launch uh, target for them to to be able to to inject us on as a spacecraft to be able to evaluate the environments and to evaluate the systems that are going to fly on the on the, the spacecraft itself during that transfer and then when we get to the orbit to get i think to the root of your question a lot of what we're learning is, is about the operational realities of, of this type of, of flight. And what that means is we have to know how much ground tracking do we need to do to get an estimate of the spacecraft orbit that is sufficient to maintain the orbit doing station-keeping maneuvers about once a week. Um, and that really gets to some of these things of how do we get that done more efficiently and are there ways where we can automate some of that navigation on the ground and some of that maneuver design activity on the ground so that the operational burden of the mission is reduced. Uh, comparing, an, comparing an NRHO to something like the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, uh, one of the big differences from a math perspective, from a physics perspective, is the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter is flying much lower to the moon and effectively is in you know an orbit about the moon that really, from a systems perspective, has to worry about the moon's gravity and, 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 and being there. One of the challenges that we get for having such an accessible orbit in an NRHO is that the NRHO is influenced by both the Earth and the Moon. And for, we'll say the orbit's about seven days, for about six days, it's really primarily uh, influenced by the Earth. And then for a day or so, it's primarily influenced by the Moon. And so that combination of two bodies and the sort of uh, evolution over a seven-day orbit of, of which is more dominant and which is more impactful, that really drives some of those operational complexities. No, I think so. So basically, it's the complexity of the various sort of arithmetic you have to do to figure out the precise course because the orbit is changing due to the, the three bodies affecting it. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah, and actually, uh, so this is Chris Beck. I'm going to add, add a little bit more on, on to that. So, you know, as, as Brad was saying, you know, these are, you know, these, these are multi-body orbits. Um, you know, one way to, another way to talk about, uh, you know, the transfer is, you know, one way it's referred to is, is a uh, gravity manifold trajectory. You're using uh, the pull of, of multiple different bodies. And then once you're in that near rectilinear halo orbit, you, you have the benefit of, you know, a lower energy entering into that from kind of an Earth frame of reference and a lower energy leaving it to get to the lunar surface. And that's because you've got this pull from both, uh, both the Earth and Moon, as, as Brad was just discussing. So it has the benefit of the low energy to get into and the low energy to get out of, but you are then now kind of riding this balance point between the gravitational pull of the Earth and the gravitational pull of the Moon. And, and that's, you know, as was just said, that's what gets into that kind of complexity of making sure uh, you, you know how, how to stay in that, how much energy it's going to take to stay in that balance, uh, balance point um, and get that kind of operational experience um, before we go and do that with Gateway. Why is it taking so long to get to the moon? Um, you know, a couple-day trip in Apollo, so I'm just trying to, is it because of this uh, strange orbit you have to get into? Is that the reason for taking three months, I think I read online? Thanks. Yes, it is because we're using that low-energy trajectory and we're using the, the pull uh, from the sun to help us get to the moon that, that increases that timeline. Uh, it's, it's a much a more efficient transfer in terms of fuel, fuel usage, but it, it trades that efficiency for time. And then, uh, Brad, if you want to elaborate on, um, on the ins and outs of the orbital mechanics there, please, please do so. Absolutely, yeah. Thank, thank you, Chris. Uh, great question. And so, yeah, as Chris was mentioning, the the key there is really leveraging the, the sun's gravity in this case to more efficiently get to the moon, uh, which enabled the whole thing. Uh, as part of your question was about the Artemis mission, uh, and, and I may have misspoke. There's only two missions that have flown this. The Artemis mission flew two relatively small spacecraft 
uh, in, in these Earth-Moon three-body orbits, as Chris uh, clarified, not uh, near rectilinear halo orbits, but a different type of three-body orbit that was done uh, in like the 2009 time frame. I'm uh, pulling it for you. I'm sorry, I don't have it off the top of my head. Uh, and then the, the Chinese uh, space agency is actually currently operating in a, a Earth-Moon L2 orbit with a, a relay uh, capability for their far side lander. Um, I saw two contracts listed online, launch about $10 million and capstone $13.7 million. Are those good numbers to use for the mission cost? The launch cost public value is $9.95 million, and the mission cost is $19.98 million. Indeed, I just wanted to clarify one piece, too, on the, the duration capstone is using to get there is the three months because of the ballistic lunar transfer, um, and that's to make it a low cost in terms of performance or fuel. Um, when we travel to this orbit with the crew in Artemis, it would be as few as five days, potentially up to 10, which is really based around rendezvousing with like, the gateway if it's the Orion vehicle. So very different um, travel times, whether we're traveling with crew or cargo type uh, satellite. So um, more of five-day type entry uh, for crew in the future. One of the benefits of the transfer approach that we're using for Capstone is that no matter which day we launch in the upcoming window, uh, we will arrive at the same day. It's actually October 15th uh, of this year. Um, and so if, if you imagine if we launch, you know, day one, it's, it's one transfer. And if we launch during the window, it becomes a shorter transfer. And so that, that we've gotten some questions about that in the past. And it's, it's really uh, actually a feature of the approach. Um, because one of the key things of the specific operational NRHO we'll be flying is that this is a eclipse-free NRHO, so we'll, it's designed to avoid uh, eclipses from the Earth, which is a very important consideration. And in this window, we will always arrive uh, on October 15th. Uh, it's about 1.30 in the morning mountain time, uh, and so all of our operational teams here and at Darren Orbital will be uh, working the night shift to be to be ready to execute that that activity. Uh, but I just wanted to get to the duration of, of why it's sort of – the answer to the duration is it sort of – it depends. The mission nominally you know, up to 18 months, uh, six months kind of baseline, and then up to 18 months uh, operation. Our next question comes from Jeff Faust with Space News. Jeff, your line is now open. Uh, good afternoon. Question for uh, Peter Beck. Just curious, you know, if there are any special challenges or obstacles you had to overcome in the development of the lunar photon system to send Capstone to the moon, and do you see any applicability of this technology for other missions, uh, other applications beyond this particular mission? Thanks. Yeah, great, great question, Jeff. Uh, tremendous amount of, of new technologies developed, uh, including an, an entirely new propulsion system called Hypercurry. Uh, you know, generally, uh, small propulsion systems with really high ISP is, is, a, is a difficult thing to master. Um, you know, the, the propulsion system, Hypercurry, is a 320-second back ISP, you know, full hypergolf storable. So that, that, was, that was a tremendous amount of work. And then, you know, on, on the vehicle itself, um, you know, I think the, the, the largest lift we've done to date is around about 200 kgs. Um, and this, this flight is in excess of 300 kgs. Lots of new developments. Probably one of the most exciting things is, is to kind of to your point, is that this is a, a really, really high-performance, high-delta V upper stage that, that we can use, you know, for, for Capstone, but, you know, it forms the basis of our mission to Venus and, you know, a bunch of other, you know, potential programs that have that, that really high, you know, delta V requirement and, and performance. That's uh, Peter Beck, one of those smart Kiwis that I spoke of a moment ago. We'll have more in a few minutes. 88.3 Southern FM, the sounds of the Bayside. And now we return to the briefing on the Capstone mission. Our next question comes from Ramin Gabba with Wired. Your line is now open. I think this is a question for Brad Cheatham. I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about the two uh, technology demonstrations. It, it, it sounded like it, there's a positioning system and a navigation system, um, especially if one of these uh, are, are particularly new that you're testing out here. The first key for us is the Cislunar Autonomous Positioning System, or CAPS, um, and that in and of itself is an architecture uh, which will provide uh, spacecraft operating in the Earth-Moon system or at the moon with knowledge of where that spacecraft is. And so that is something certainly on the ground we take for granted. We have a GPS system to give us that information beyond Earth orbit into the moon and beyond. That information is traditionally uh, collected using ground-based tracking where ground stations stock the satellite, and the ground figures out where the satellite is. So one of the key enablers for CAPS 
as we see it, is, is providing that location information to a satellite onboard the satellite. And so that will be uh, the core of, of the technology demonstration for onboard activities. Um, in that experiment or in that, that, that technology mindset, we'll be evaluating data measurements that we'll be able to obtain by talking with the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter in low lunar orbit. From that communication with LRO, we'll get uh, uh, information on the, the distance and the time history of that distance between the two spacecraft. That will be used by the CAPS software to, to figure out where both spacecraft are. That's sort of the first, uh, the first key part of the demo. Another uh, thing that we added to the program was also the inclusion of a second data type, uh, which will utilize a, a chip scale atomic clock or a CSAC um, that will allow the spacecraft to listen to transmissions from the Earth and just from receiving that information, be able to provide another type of information that will feed uh, a positioning estimate for the spacecraft at the moon. So the core piece on the satellite is based around CAPS, the Cislunar Autonomous Positioning System. The second key piece, uh, and not necessarily in order of importance, but the second key piece I'll talk about is the ground technology, which, which I think you're alluding to, which is really to say the ability for a, a commercial company, in, in our case, to operate a satellite at the moon in these unique orbits. That in of itself is a whole other technology activity that we've been able to develop uh, and demonstrate as we've moved to launch. And so those are the two key pieces I think that you're, you're asking about. And so CAPS is really the onboard knowledge of where the satellite is and the, the ground-based uh, flight dynamic system, which is really sort of the mission-unique uh, part of how to fly at the moon. And then just to be really clear, and I'm happy to hand it off if you'd like to talk about it more, uh, our partners at Terran Orbital will actually be the team sending the commands to the satellite and making sure that the rest of the satellite's working uh, besides just figuring out where it is and, and when it needs to do a maneuver. Thank you. Our next question comes from Emily Speck with Fox Weather. Your line is now open. My question is for Peter Beck. I believe I read that the lunar photon will continue on after separation for safe disposal. Where is that disposal orbit? And also, will data from this flight help with the future mission to Venus? Thank you. Thanks, Emily. Yeah, yeah. So to answer the, the, the second part of your question first, uh, absolutely. Um, you know, this is, and I think as Chris mentioned, this really, you know, lays the groundwork for future you know, deep space missions of Electron and other platforms. The team has worked to really ensure that you know, it, the, the end of life for this stage is, is in, a, in, a, in a safe and disposed orbit. Some of that depends on propellant residuals to, to what actual orbit we end up in. You know, if we have uh, if we have you know a, a large amount of residuals, then we'll look to you know look look for various different orbits that, that you know that we can that we can park. Thank you. Our next question comes from Leonard David with Inside Outer Space. At some point, I thought that the uh, capstone would have a camera on it. I don't know if that's the case today. And just uh, building on Jeff Faust. Uh, question for Peter. Um, it looks to me like what we're seeing here is a, you know, kind of a, a stepping stone approach to deep space exploration with uh, small payloads. And uh, clearly uh, Rocket Lab is very interested in follow-on missions. And, and to what degree do we kind of tip our cap to capstone for making this new milestone capable? Yes, we, we do have a payload imager on board. We're very excited to, to have the satellite out there and, and to see what we can collect with that imager. We haven't, uh, hasn't come up today just because that isn't in and of itself tied to a technology demonstration. That's more of a, a you know, why would you go to the moon without a camera, right? So uh, we're looking forward to that, and we have ideas actually about how in that uh, sort of enhanced mission phase, after we've, you know, gotten through some of the core technology demonstrations, to really understand how that, those optical, how optical data could inform uh, positioning at the moon as well as uh, exploring other uses for that data. So certainly that imager is, is in the satellite, is in, is in New Zealand, and the spacecraft is fueled and, and ready to go, and that will be part of it. We just, it's, it's not uh, right now at the core of any of the technology uh, objectives. Our next question comes from Jim McKenna with Aerospace Tech Review. You mentioned uh, the ability to avoid uh, an Earth eclipse. Is the plan for this spacecraft to be in an orbit that has it always facing the Earth and rather than going behind the moon? And is that a capability that's attributable to this distinct orbit? Absolutely, yes, Jim. Thank you. Uh, I'll answer that and then I'll also uh, hand it over to Najud to see if there's anything 
general, she'd like to add. But, but yes, to answer your question, what we'll be designing is a specific phase of the NRHO so that we are, are not in an eclipse from the Earth. Um, another key benefit, which I don't think we've talked about, uh, or if we have, uh, I'll reiterate it, is that this, this orbit, this, this unique orbit, is always in view of the Earth. Um, so we are never behind the moon as you look from the Earth. Um, and the phasing of the orbit itself, the first part of the, the response, is that we're also uh, timed so that we're never flying through the shadow of the Earth, as you can imagine that uh, moves around the, the lunar distance. And so those are the, the two key things. Um, and, and the reason why I mentioned it is because this is the uh, exact same approach that Gateway is taking. In fact, we are, are designing all of our capstone mission operations around the orbit that is planned for Gateway. So this gets to part of that operational experience. And part of that gets to, as I mentioned earlier, the launch timing and the approach to get to the orbit uh, are very sensitive to that phasing. And so that's an approach that the ballistic transfer helps us address. Yeah, thank you, Brad. Um, yeah, so I'll note that the specific resonance Brad is talking about is a 9-2 sonotic resonance, which means for every two months, uh, we'll pass through nine orbits. So it's a very specific NRHO. There's actually a whole family of NRHOs, but we've chosen a very specific one for the Gateway and Artemis missions, which really avoids those Earth eclipses, which can be multiple hours in length. So to design vehicles to survive multiple hours of eclipsing um, would be far too challenging. Um, this doesn't mean that they will never see eclipsing because we will pass behind the moon when we're very close to the moon. Uh, every once in a while, um, but those eclipses are, are less than 90 minutes. They're generally in the 70 or 80 minute range, but those are lunar eclipses, not Earth eclipsing. So as Brad discussed, right, this orbit was very carefully tailored um, to support the longer missions because you, we don't want to build vehicles out for those long Earth eclipsing, which would add a lot of performance really battery mass and power systems that you'd need as well as thermal systems. So um, if there's any follow-up, but yeah, this is it's very important on the timing for this orbit. And a reminder that early today, a rocket lab set June 13 as the target launch date for that very exciting mission to the moon. Yes, <laughs> Australia can't even get anything into space. New Zealanders, yes, they can put it all the way to the moon. Well, I'm Andrew Rennie. And I look forward to sharing with you the excitement of space exploration every Wednesday at 7 o'clock.